Hello and welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast that explores the face of Mennonite peacemaking in the 21st century. I'm Hannah Heinzicker, one of your hosts for the Peace Lab podcast and also the executive director of the Mennonite Inc. You may remember that in our last episode, we shared part one of a conversation with Reverend Leonard Dow, who works now as a stewardship and development associate with Everence, stewardship financial organization, and who was also a pastor at Oxford Circle Mennonite Church in Philadelphia for many years. If you didn't get to hear our first conversation, I would urge you to go back in your feed, either on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and find the previous episode so that you know where we're picking up. And with no further ado, let's jump back in. In some ways, you're starting to address the work that you're doing with Everett, where you're going to these communities, um, mm-hmm. especially urban communities and churches of color, and kind of doing some listening and info gathering to figure out what Everett can do to serve sure. communities that maybe Everett really hasn't served all that well in the past. Sure. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're learning in, in this work so far. Yeah. If I could just back up for a second, Hannah, and just, and, and I will get to the question is the one thing I'm learning is that. My work at Oxford Circle in, in our nonprofit that we started 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and even our model of now they call it social entrepreneurship, that model that we use is somewhat unique from a sustainability model. Uh, many of the churches, many of the ministry in urban settings, uh, in my opinion, have been set up to be dependent on resources outside of their own community. And so as a result, when the mission boards that we used to have up into the 90s and things like that go by the wayside or when the majority of the mission resources that we do gather go for international missions, many of our urban churches in the late 90s, early 2000s were at a loss as to how do we keep the lights on? How do we keep? And so for me and our people at Oxford Circle, we decided or God led us to decide that we wanted to be self-sufficient, which we were already because we owned our building. The, the leadership before I got there had that. But we also wanted to be sustainable, and we wanted to generate income that would allow us to do the ministry that we felt God was calling us. In other words, we wanted to move away from the model that we were going to ask others to give us resources so that we could do ministry in our community. Now, I'm not against that but that's not sustainable. That's just not long-term thinking. And so what we're able to do and what they're doing now at Oxford Circle, and I would encourage people who are interested in, in, in looking at a unique model to look them up, occda.org, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But when I went around the country here in my role with Everence, and, and my title is Stewardship and Development Specialist, another way of looking at that is uh, Everence has hired me to really – begin crystallizing a clear pathway forward for urban engagement. How do we as, a, as an organization begin engaging the growing edge of the church, as Ken Hostetler, our president, often refers to it as, in a way that's authentic, that builds capacity, would allow us to come alongside what's already happened in urban centers. And, and so that's what I'm doing. That's what my role is. So the first thing I did is no different than what I did when I was at Oxford Circle in 1990, whatever it was, 98, 99. I began with an assessment. And so uh, I was blessed to be able to talk to about 100 different people across the country um, in urban centers specifically, not about two-thirds being uh, Anabaptist-related, uh, but the others not being Anabaptist, but they were involved in, in uh, social entrepreneurship, small business 
sustainable models of social impact, those type of things. And I was able to to sit down with them either directly or uh, through Zoom calls like this or uh, the old-fashioned telephone. <laughs> and I was able to kind of gather information through interviews, through uh, qualitative uh, research. And um, basically the question, one of the key questions was, how can Everence or a, a faith-based organization like Everence become the first choice for people of faith in your particular community and your particular urban setting? That was kind of the big question. And then from that, we, I really got a lot of information. And out of it, a couple of things came. One, there's a, a large educational gap, low moderate income, which goes across uh, ethnicities, Anglo as well, but uh, disproportionately in African-American and Hispanic communities, there's, a, there's just an educational gap of what I would call financial wellness. How do you get from a place of dependency to a place of stability? Within the Mennonite church, we love talking about downward mobility. And Henry Nowen, one of my favorite authors, I affirm it. We clearly see it in John 1. But when you, when you as a people, when you as a people or you individually financially have been at a position where you're already poor, or at least financially poor, you need a gospel message, a holistic message that talks about financial stability. How do you get to a place where you have enough so that you can, quote, pay your bills, take care of your family, have health insurance, have those things that I believe uh, when we talk about peace, shalom, that I believe God wants us to be in a position to have. And so one of the strategies that, uh, that I'm working in my role here at Everence and, and we'll be rolling out hopefully in 2018 in, in our designated urban centers that we want to start with will be around education first, but then around basic banking, cash flow management. You know, how do we make sure we have enough coming in? Well, the only way to know that is if you know what's going out. <laughs> You know, and so for some of us who have grown up in family situations where that type of information is common knowledge, it seems elementary. But being a pastor of 20 years, I know that that, that type of understanding of financial stewardship and, and those type of things are not just common knowledge. And so one of the strategies will be working with churches and urban centers, uh, Anabaptists, yes, but there are a lot of other, um, I get in a little trouble at, at, with some of my conversations with uh, some of my Ever Everence brethren. Mennonites think we're the only ones that believe Jesus needs to be the center of our faith. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. there are other Christians that affirm that. That community is the, you know, is the center of our lives and reconciliation is the center of our work. They're like, there are other Christians that, yes, there is. <laughs> You mean Palmer Becker did not invent those? Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's right. What? Great. I mean, I use them all the time. And so one of the things I think Everence will be able to engage in is, is, is a broader church than just our Anabaptist uh, heritage, uh, which for us urbanites is quite natural. You know, we don't keep our, our light in a bushel, you know, covered. We, we tend to share it with our Lutheran, with our Baptist, with our UCC uh, church like that. So education things around cash flow management, and then an urban area, especially with uh, people of color, African-American, Hispanic communities that we want to reach, we tend to be um, not only underserved, but we tend to be underinsured, underprotected. And so when tragedy happens, we have no margin 
uh, of recovery, and we don't have the financial networks for a lot of systemic reasons that I don't have time to get into to be able to recover for that. So we go to the church hoping that, that the $10,000, $12,000 funeral or the medical bill can be covered by the church. And I had way too many conversations with people where we were able to help a little bit, but we couldn't cover that. So how can we be proactive as a church um, in those type of situations? So that's kind of some things that we'll be, be entering into, as well as bringing some of the financial service directly into urban centers. And so you'll hear more about that in uh, preferably in 2018 and in my work. You, know, you bring up something really interesting. So if, you're, if you've lived your life in, you know, sort of in the grips of poverty, you know what? A prosperity gospel is going to sound pretty darn good. And it's sort of easy to kind of look at that and say, how do people fall for that? Yes. You're getting ground down six days a week, and, and one day somebody can say, no, it's going to get better. That's going to sound good. And, of course, people exploit that emotion. But if we can come in as a church and part of our mission and say, no, you know, there's nothing wrong with being able to pay your bills That's and, right. you know, and, and cover these things, and you can do it in a godly way. That just makes all the sense in the world. That's right. And you're right. You're right. I, I mean, I should just say amen and not comment, but you did, guys, did call me for the interview. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to let you hit, drop the mic and walk away. Um, no, you're right. I'm not a sociologist or historian, but in my experience in the 70s, after the civil rights movement, the African-American community specifically, what the civil rights movement really enabled a lot of the barriers to to engage in other communities were reduced. And that was good and needed to happen. But what the unplanned, um, I think, happened was those who could move out of our African-American communities, families like mine, my parents, they did. And that left a disproportionate amount of poor folk in these communities with no resources, limited social capital, now stuck in these particular communities. And one of the major institutions that left was the church, the African-American church, unfortunately, not in every community, but a lot of communities. And they moved, they did the Jefferson thing. They moved up and moved out. And so there wasn't a gospel message. People have been listening to this here at Everest since I've been here is what is the message for those who grew up in poverty? Is it always to just receive and is your role always to give? Because in my understanding of the gospel narrative and in Jesus Christ himself, that is not the case. Jesus himself did come and he did give, but he also received the woman washed his feet, right? There on the cross, he received water. So Jesus willingly put himself in the position of receiving. And I think the challenge for those of us who have financial resources or educational wherewithal and those type of things is to recognize it's only half of the gospel to always be in a position of giving. That's a lot of power. And so what I worked at at Oxford Circle and what I'm hoping to be able to contribute to the larger church is building the capacity of communities and individuals who historically have been left out of that opportunity. And by God's grace and, and, and the resources of Everence and people who want to invest in Everence and use their investments in social responsible ways, when you do that, that allows us to give rates and, and loans and that allows us to be a lot more flexible with people who historically couldn't go to a regular, not a regular, but a traditional bank, but they can come to us as a credit union 
and we'll be able to, to work at them and move them towards financial wellness. So yes, Jason, you, you are correct. And I think the church has still missed out on opportunity. I don't think we have enough material around what I'm framing as upward stability, financial. How do we, from a biblical standpoint, move people towards that? Because if you inherited wealth, that downward mobility stuff is great. But when you're trying to move out of that, you know, I tell folk, and hopefully no one will take this the wrong way, but since it's a podcast, I don't have to look at them. (laughs) You know, I grew up poor, and sometimes I think we glamorize poverty to such an extent and miss out that when Jesus said uh, there in Luke 4, 418, that the Spirit of God has come upon me and that he's good news to the poor, well, good news to the poor is that you don't have to be poor anymore. Yeah. Good news to the poor isn't, I'm here to help you to stay poor. Good news is you no longer have to be poor in the systems that are oppressing you. By God's grace, I'm, I'm now going to come and I'm going to redeem them. and I'm going to restore you back to good relationship with God's creation, with your brother and sister, and to God himself. And uh, thanks, Leonard. I heard in your answer, I heard you say that I was correct, but I've not heard you say I was brilliant yet on this podcast. <laughs> if you could that in at some point, I think our listeners would approve. But, but let's, we're coming to the end of our time here, but, but I do want to ask you maybe to put on that visioning hat again that, that you talked about, that you did with Arkansas Circle, and, and you're still doing it here with Everett, certainly, but one of the conversations that we have here on Peace Lab and it's happening across the churches, what does being a peacemaker means in the 21st century? What does it mean for us as a peace church to respond to our times in, in ways that are going to emulate Jesus, that are going to be thoughtful? You're thinking through this in, in the sort of the economic ramifications, which is really challenging and liberating. But I didn't know if you've thought about that maybe even on, on a more meta level. What, what is it going to be for us to be a, a, a relevant peace church uh, in the times that we're in? Yeah, and we are, you know, in difficult times, challenging times, I would say. Many of us used to ask, what would we have done in the times of the Nazism or, you know, white supremacy is still with us, but the overt white supremacy that people experienced in the 50s and, you know, in the 60s. And, and I say, well, now, for at least from my perspective, we have an opportunity to either speak, act, pray, or our children's going to ask us, what, what were you doing in 2000? 16, 17, during this difficult time. And so the question of peace is a good one. I think depending on where you're standing, that question of peace can seem differently. Meaning that if you're, if you're asking the question of peace and you're at a position where, you're, where your livelihood, where your ethnicity, where your color of your skin, where your pocketbook isn't directly, dramatically affected, the question around peace is going to be dramatically different from those of us who feel as though we have to engage forward in something. One of the challenges within the Mennonite church, from my perspective, is that peace is, is, is often perceived as something that we refrain from. We're not going to be violent, so we're, we're going to be nonviolent. So my recommendation specifically around, let me start with finance, is that when salvation came to Lazarus, Lazarus, not only was he transformed, it had an economic shift in his pocketbook. He no longer could use the resources that he had gotten from a system 
illegally, so to speak, the tax system, he said, I have to repay. I have to be proactive in the utilization of my funds. I would challenge people that in the times that we're in, your financial resources and for groups and for uh, uh, people groups, your financial resources can go a long way in helping establish grants. I mentioned about the lending pool here at Everance and creating financial wellness that can impact people directly. You don't have to sit on the sidelines. You can, you can, you know, you can participate in that. I think Charlottesville has, has set us up for this failure that we now see white supremacy and uh, things like that as the extreme again, you know. But the fact is, is that um, if we're honest, those folk are, are, are many of our Anglo uncles and aunts and moms and brothers and sisters, and yet we do not challenge uh, I'm not talking necessarily political perspectives. I'm talking about outright disrespectful ways in which they see people like myself and see communities, you know, like myself. We do not challenge them. We do not become a bridge builder because they need redemption as much as anyone else. And we don't create pathways for engagement. We just say, well, that's how Uncle Bob is. Well, no, Uncle Bob shouldn't be that way if he or she is a follower of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm going to love them back into a greater, fuller understanding of who God is and what God desires for us. So there are ways that we can move the needle in the system, but also in our personal relationships. Um, I'll just drop a little knowledge just around one of the, I think, most powerful passages in Scripture that people need to, to unpack. And if you're, if you're going to be in Goshen, the middle of January, I'm going to be there at their Martin Luther King celebration speaking. So if you come, you can't quote anything I'm saying because I'll be using this. So, but <laughs> in a book of Philemon there, Onesimus had come to know who Jesus was, as we said now growing up, as his Savior and Lord, right? He had come to know and he had overheard this message, scholars believe, while he was a slave in Philemon's house. So when Paul was there preaching, he overheard the words that come to me all who are heavy burden, I'll give you rest. And somewhere along the line, the slave became a Christian. This slave had the nerve to believe that that freedom also freed him from slavery. <laughs> that if Philemon is a Christian and I'm a Christian, that our relationship has now changed. That my slaveholder will no longer be my slaveholder. He will set me free the dynamics that was here would now be even, and all this stuff. Well, Philemon is like many of us people of faith in 2017. He was like, no, I'm a Christian, but I want to keep everything else the same. <laughs> I want to keep my money. I want to keep my power. I want to keep my stuff. Yeah. So Onesimus goes to Paul, who's kind of the elder there, and, and Paul writes back to Philemon and says, dude, um, you got it wrong. In Christ." All things change. There's no longer slave and slaveholder. There's no longer Jew and Jutile. There's no longer male and female and all these things. And he basically breaks it down there in that one beautiful chapter saying, you have to now see Onesimus as you see me. You can no longer see Onesimus the way that you used to. When you were walking in the ways of the world, you had the eyes of the world, that's how you're supposed to see him. 
But now that you now have on these new eyes, you got to see them as Christ sees them. So you can't be a slaveholder and be a follower of Christ. You can't be abusing your power in a position. So many women now are coming to the forefront as an employer, as a pastor, as a priest, or as a studio executive, and be a follower of Jesus Christ. They're incompatible. You can't be a slaveholder in Libya that's going on now. And be, so that's the radicalness of the gospel message. And then he goes on, what I love about it is, then Paul goes on and says, uh, Onesimus, I could tell you to do this, but I'm going to passively aggressive. He must have been Mennonite. I'm going to passively aggressively, <laughs> aggressively tell you, I expect you to do this out of love. Yeah. And what we have missed that we have messed up this word love. We have made love only a romantic or something that we feel. Love ain't got nothing to do with our feelings, at least how it's used in this context. Martin Luther King never said I have to like you, he said, but I gotta love them. Love from a Christian perspective is putting on the lens of Christ and loving the unlovable, or loving those who I thought I was better than. It's not a feeling. It's, it's an action. It's, it's a, so Paul says to, to, to uh, Onesimus, I'm sorry, to Philemon, you got to do this out of love. I'm not making you. I'm kind of in them, but I'm not making you. <laughs> and then my favorite part, he says, I'm, by the way, I'm going to come by and visit you in the near future. In other words, I'm coming to check to see if the relationship has changed. And so way back to your question of peace, when you look at those different dynamics, I don't know if our relationships have changed. Those who have been in power are still in power. Those who call the shots still call the shots. Those who have been poor are still poor. Those who have been disenfranchised are still in disenfranchised. And this last statement that I'm done gets me in trouble all the time. And the church needs to be the forerunner in modeling this before it asks the rest of the world to join in. If we want the world around us to be a just place, the church has to be a just place. If we want the powerless to have a voice and active engagement to, to, to make some decisions around how we do church, how we love one, then the church needs to be a place to do that, you know. If we want those who are in power in Washington to uh, be subservient, so to speak, to those who are in the constituents that they represent, those of us who are in power at the church, we need to be submitting more to those. around. So there's a high calling uh, that seeking peace that we haven't fully realized. Uh, yeah, it's a high calling. And, 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 and I think, when we look at that message there in Philemon, we then begin to recognize that in Christ, man, it's a huge, this thing of racism, sexism, and, and, uh, and xenophobia, and all these things that we, they're not new. We've been dealing with that, but it's only in Christ and by God's grace that we'll be able to become more and more like him. Doesn't mean that we're going to get it always right, but uh, the hope is that we can become more and more like Christ in the process. I went so off script, brother, that I have no idea how you're going to edit this. No, it's fantastic. I can't think of a better note to end on. (laughs) 
I appreciate the uh, opportunity. I didn't get a chance to talk as much about Oxford, but um, I think a lot of people know about my work there. So um, again, I encourage people to check it out on the, on the website. There's some really cool people. One of the good things about me stepping away is that I, I always told people I was the sizzle out and, and there's a lot of stake there. In other words, people knew about me, but now the people who are behind the scenes are, are now getting some, some light and some play and, 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 um, and is well-deserved because they're taking it to the next level. And it's going to be exciting to see where and how God's going to take that uh, ministry there in Philadelphia. Well, Reverend Dowd, thank you for spending this hour with us. We are excited to have you here. I feel like we could have three more conversations probably. What do you think, Jason? <laughs> and I behaved. And I didn't say it just to have it on record. Jason is brilliant. Oh, my. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's, all we need. That. That's a hard name for us. That's all we need on this podcast. <laughs> Wait a minute. You, te- you text me something else, Jason. What else did you just tell me to say? <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, this this is saying it's time for us to wrap it up now. That's right. That's right. That's right. God bless you both. (laughs) Thanks, Leonard. Thanks so much. Peace. What a conversation. We are so grateful to the Reverend Leonard Dow for joining us for these two episodes of the Peace Lab podcast. That's all the time we've got for today, and thanks for listening. You can find this episode and many more episodes of the Peace Lab podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. If you liked what you heard here, Subscribe to follow us or give us a strong rating. These actions help other people to find our show, too. Peace Lab is a joint production of the Mennonite and the Peace and Justice Support Network. Our theme song is performed by David Fisher-Fast of Mennonite Mission Network, and Norm Sohar provides our sound editing. Until next time, I'm Hannah Heinzeker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>